This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello there, Ashley Banfield here, and this is Rising Tide, the place where I bring some of the greatest mentor minds to you. If you care about your craft and you want to be better at what you do, I want to help you with that. You know, it's easy to assume that you need an Ivy League education to really make it big. But each month, I feature VIP mentors who are leaders in their industry, and they say, that's not true. They're going to prove to you that you don't have to have highbrow connections to create your own personal best. And they've agreed to share their tips, their secrets, and their career advice with you. This is Rising Tide. This is just great. You have no idea. I'm reuniting with another former colleague of mine, so I'm super delighted. Let me give you a quick once-over on uh, George Stephanopoulos' background. You probably know most of it, maybe not all of it, though. Um, He's, of course, the anchor of Good Morning America and This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Uh, there's a reason that he's uh, hauled in three Emmys, a DuPont, three Murrows, and a, a two Cronkite Awards, and that's just the surface of his awards. For a quarter of a century, George has led some of the most important work that ABC News has done. Before that, he was President Bill Clinton's Senior Advisor for Policy and Strategy in the White House. He led ABC's coverage on four presidential elections and three presidential town halls. His interview Hall of Fame is just chef's kiss. Um, okay, it, it's this is just the tip again. Uh, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, and Russian President Vladimir Putin. Like I said, it's only the, the start of his massive list. As for the celebrities, uh, I'm, George not, Putin, I'm not allowed to do Putin anymore because I've been banned from Russia. I'm under Russian sanctions now. So that's not allowed that Honor. Good for you. It means you matter, George. That's what that means. Good for you. <laughs> and isn't that something in your career? Like that's a first, right? First. That is definitely a first. Yeah. I would put that on your wall. Uh, George Clooney, Nancy Pelosi, Billy Porter, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, James Comey. He's the author of All Too Human, a number one New York Times bestseller. And George is also a Rhodes Scholar. Match. Um what I didn't know about uh, George is that his, his master's degree was in theology. George, you totally surprised me with that. You graduated summa cum laude from uh, Columbia with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. Theology, can I just start there for a minute? Because a lot of our participants are you know, recent grads getting started and might wonder if they chose the wrong thing or if they did the right thing or if, they, if their path was exactly what they needed it to be. So take me from a degree in theology. Well, that was, I mean, I was lucky to be able to do that. As you said, I was a Rhodes Scholar, and I actually went to Oxford after working for a couple of years on Capitol Hill, but I come from a family of Greek Orthodox priests, my father, grandfather, uncle, godfather, and it's something I always had an intellectual interest in as well, and what I did was, because I had the freedom given to me by the scholarship, I was able, it was really an applied degree in moral theology, and I was able to just look at a lot of the issues I dealt with on Capitol Hill, would later deal with in 
campaigns and journalism, but through a different sort of philosophical theological lens. So I think I was I was lucky to have the chance and it, it helped enrich my mind. It makes perfect sense. Moral theology. I think that's where we all need to be right now. A lot of us are missing a lot of that. I think when we uh, choose candidates because of our parliamentary you know, decision making. Yeah, it seems like we make decisions based on tribe, not on thought these days. Yeah, yeah, good point. Okay, let me start with Ken. And we have a truncated uh, session today because George had something come up at uh, 2.50. So we're going to try and get as much in in the next, um, uh, let's see, looks like about 20 minutes. Okay, so this is from Kenneth Johnson in Los Angeles. He asks, what is your strategy for formulating questions to get a candid response from interview subjects who are truly reticent to share their actual opinion? Are you also, um, are you concerned about making your subject angry from the line of questioning? And how do you deal with that? Good question. Um, the, the, those are generally interviews with um, politicians or policymakers or CEOs, things like that. People are facing some sort of, of controversy or, or, or just often just in the public life. Uh, I have a, a few components to the strategy. Number one, it all begins with research. It all begins with research and homework making sure I know everything that the subject has said about the issue at hand and am well-grounded in the arguments about those the positions that the, the subject has taken, whether there's, uh, whether it's, there's been a switch in positions, you know, what the critics are saying about that position and um, alternate perspectives on the same issue. So I try to be, have, have as much research as I can get done in the time allotted. Uh, then on top of that, be, based on that research, I, I try to do what I call skip the, skip the first question. Uh, knowing what that person is going to say on the first question, I try to anticipate that and go straight to the second question, the follow-up, if I can. You can't always do that, and you often will have the, the subject give the speech they wanted to give anyway, but at least I've shown where I want to go with it. But once you've done your homework, once you've laid out uh, your preparation, the most important thing to do is to listen and to know the one or two things that are most important to get out of the interview. I once got some great advice by my former boss when he was president of Eastern News, David Weston, who said, no one will remember the question you didn't ask. And I think that that's generally very true. I mean, there's sometimes there are questions you must ask, but you really have to know exactly what you're trying to get out of an interview, and especially when there's time pressures, so that you're focused in on that one uh, or, or two most important issues. And then once you've done that, you've got to be in the moment and listen for any cracks in the responses you get. And if you don't get an answer, be ready to follow up and say, I understand what you just said, but that wasn't an answer to my question. Here's what I'm asking. And being willing to go with that as long as you can. Now, the tricky part there is that, uh, especially if you're working up against a clock in a live interview, is, you know, a lot of these people are well-practiced, well-coached, and they're just not going to come off their talking points. At some point, I usually, there's sometimes, I mean, I, I once asked Mike Pence the same question nine times in a row because of the way he was uh, answering the question about some gay rights legislation in Indiana, but generally, um, if it's very clear after the third question, you're not going to get a different answer. I'll pull back and say, 
something like, why don't you want to answer that question? <laughs> or, or, or say to the audience, it's clear that you're not going to answer the question either why or it's time to move on, one or the other. That's really phenomenal advice because I think a lot of times journalists, especially again, if they're working under the live gun um, and the time limit, they, they think they have to get the question. And sometimes the fact that they're not answering the question is the answer. That's and the point. we fail to see that. And you have to, yeah, you're, remember, you're the surrogate for the viewer or the listener, the reader in, in these cases. And the important thing to do there is to show that you know you're not getting the question answered <laughs> because that's exactly what people at, watching at home are thinking. You state it and then you can move on. Right. Good point. Okay. Uh, there's two questions from uh, two um, attendees and they're similar. So I'm going to read both of them. The first is from Megan and Megan's in Hampton Bays, New York and Esteban Herrera is in Fresno, California. And here are the two questions. What advice would you give to someone just starting out in their career? What can I do now to contribute to future success? That's Megan's. And then Esteban's is with the way the world is currently, what's the best advice you would give someone interested in pursuing a career in journalism today? So, you know, overall advice to get into this business and what we can do right now uh, to start, you know, planning and, and getting ahead in the future. You know, read as much as you can, study as much as you can. That goes for anything. And I would start right there. But generally, one of, one of the things I've, um, and this doesn't hold across the board, but um, I tell the younger journalists who I work with, uh, try to develop a specialty. You're always going to be able to pick up the techniques, the technology, the, the, the nuts and bolts of how to do interviews and how to report. But what really sets people apart of those who have an expertise that is essential uh, in an organization. You know, I was lucky. I came, I came into journalism a very different way. I came out of politics and, 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 and working in the White House. So I always had that base, which I then branched out from at ABC, but to, to be, to, to, be a relative expert in at least one field, I think makes a big difference, whether it's politics or medicine or science, uh, economics, anything like that. You know, it, that's such a great answer and such a great question because I feel like, you know, the landscape has morphed in that area. 20 years ago, uh, reporters were advised to be very uh, general. General assignment, right, yeah. Yeah, because that made you, um, you know, indispensable if you could cover anything on any day and the bosses knew they could toss you out on that on that topic uh you are you know very valuable well, but, you know, the truth is you have to do both right you have to be ready to cover any topic but it's added value to have expertise in a subject yeah i think the added value is great can i ask you just to to dig in a little more on megan and esteban's question about that is that more because it's just i mean it's a given it's better journalism right if you're an expert in law or politics as you are um you're going to ask better questions you're going to have better foundational knowledge for that interview but it's also a brand so which one is more valuable the knowledge and the added value in the journalism or the brand they, they, that gets you go, ahead they go, they go together i mean like i was just thinking of a, a, a reporter we have a terrific reporter we have on gma named ariel reshef and she's a general assignment for her. She covers everything. She probably does two or three stories a day on GMA, but she her uh, she spent some years in Israel studying Middle East politics. So when a crisis erupts in the Middle East, she's also got that. So she gets sent to the big story over there. That's the kind of expertise that can't be replicated. Yeah. So the brand is a, a benefit and it's also, it just makes better journalism, period. It's, it's interesting how it has changed though over the years. 
Okay, um, Stacy Harris is in Nashville, Tennessee. Her question is similar, but I'd love you to go into it a little bit more. It's as you transitioned from a career in public service to one in broadcasting, what did you find to be the most challenging part of that learning curve? This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. A few different things. I mean, the most, uh, in some ways, you know, again, I was very lucky I, because I had worked in the White House because I'd worked in politics and had a whole career, 15 years. I came in at a relatively elevated level. I came in to ABC News as an analyst based, again, on my political expertise. As I transitioned towards uh, reporter and anchor, I had a different challenge than a lot of people will have because I was already well known, especially for what I had done. My biggest challenge was convincing people that I could be fair uh, on an issue, that I wouldn't bring my personal opinions to bear on something that I could cover something objectively. That's a pretty, that was a relatively unique uh, challenge. Beyond that, just, um, you know, I found things, I, I was always, because of my background, I was pretty comfortable talking on TV. I had been interviewed, uh, you know, hundreds of times. Um, I had to learn two different things as I transitioned in my career. One, how to be an analyst, not simply be an advocate for something. And, and I've been speaking in a, in a different way. And then how to be how to be an anchor, which you can only really do, you know this, actually, you can only do it by doing it. <laughs> There's only, it's the only way to get practice. Um, and I did a lot of overnights and things like that. Um, I'm still not very good at reading the teleprompter, uh, but, you know, that's okay. I've, got, I, I, I've gotten by that. You got other skills, George. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you're just fine at reading a teleprompter, by the way. Um, you know, it's interesting. Monica Madden from Austin, Texas, had asked that question as well. Just given your background in politics, how did you, you know, move um, to prove to people that you could be a journalist and not just be, a, you know, on, on a team? Well, the, and I, I, what, I think the other important point there is that I also tried not did my best not to overcorrect, not to appear, you know, to be taking aside the People could also say they, I clearly didn't believe just to show that I could be tough. I had to give it time and let it be organic and let my, you know, just try to be consistent and honest and balanced and fair without, without having that goal in mind so that it would seem uh, too studied, too staged. Authenticity. Yeah. I mean, we, this comes up in every one of our, our seminars, our, our Rising Tide seminars, is how important authenticity is to what you do. On that point, you know, I, I've now, I can't believe how long I've been doing GMA, including my stints co-anchoring with you a few times. But I, I've been an anchor there now for since December of 2009, so a long, a long time, almost, almost 13 years. And at first, I didn't think it was the right job for me. I said, no, 
several mm -hmm. times when they asked me because of my background. I didn't, I, I didn't know that I could uh, handle myself well in that arena. But what I've learned over time at, at, at Good Morning America, the most important thing, far and away, far more important than reading the teleprompter or, or uh, you know, getting up early or whatever you want to say, is to simply be there every morning present as a real human being as authentic and, and, and to have as authentic a reaction to the wide range of issues that you end up dealing with on morning TV every day. That doesn't mean pretending I like everything or, uh, you know, being fake about, uh, you know, like I, I stopped doing home cleaning segments. No one was going to believe that, you know, I just pulled out the vacuum three times a week and was out there vacuuming my own floors. So I just didn't want to do segments like that. Or I would admit when I was doing them, well, I don't really do this, but here's, here's what we know about this right now. You, you have to be authentic people. You know, it, it's become a cliche, but it's so true. If you're on camera on live TV, two hours a day, people are going to know who you are, whether you want them to or not. So you might as well be authentic about it. Yeah. Don't put on a big morning TV smiley face if it isn't if it isn't real. It's, I love that. By the way, I just want to remind our viewers that what the last time I think I was on a set with you at GMA, you were asking me off camera. No, I actually was on camera. Um, I had gone and talked to Donald Trump and it was before his 2016 run. And he was talking again about, oh, I think I'm going to run for president. And you said to me, you really think it's real this time? Um, and I said, we've done it so many times before, right? <laughs> I said, I kind of do. I don't know if I drank the Kool-Aid, but I kind of do. Think. It turned out it was I was wrong because he didn't run again for another couple of years after that. But uh, but I remember just being so interested in, in your in your skeptical uh, question that well, you've been I through it so many times. Donald Trump about running for president in I think 1999. Yeah. So, so I mean. I, I was, I, and I, I did it sort of every three or four years up until 2016. So I was highly skeptical, but he proved a lot of people wrong. Yeah. Well, he, he had me hoodwinked, but it was, like I said, before he actually did make, make the decision. Jackson Gosnell from um, Greenville, South Carolina has a great question. And I think it kind of dovetails with your authenticity piece. And that is if you weren't in broadcast news and let's take the politics out too, um, working on, on uh, in the white house, what other career field would you be in? Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Uh, well, what I was supposed to be, um, no, what I was supposed to be, I assumed until I was 14 I was going to be a priest, but then I sort of knew freshman year of high school that wasn't going to happen. Um, basically, when I first went to work in Washington, right out of college, I worked at a think tank and then worked on Capitol Hill. And um, I kept telling my parents, no, I'll go to law school. And I applied and I deferred and I applied and I deferred. And then I got the roads instead because I didn't really want to go to law school, but I do like the law. Had had I not been lucky enough to get the scholarship, more likely than not, I would have gone to law school. And then who knows what, it, I, would, I would be a lawyer. I don't know exactly what kind, but I would have been a lawyer. 
Well, you'd have to be like a serial killer's lawyer to to match the interest in the work that you've just done for the last two decades. We're very lucky, yes. <laughs> yeah, don't don't go into corporate law. That's just <laughs> trust me. All right, I have uh, three minutes left with you. I love this question from Sarah from Connecticut. What is the most challenging interview you've ever done, and why? And what interview surprised you the most? Well, those are good questions. Um... I guess the most challenging interview, this is a little bit of a cop-out, but I guess the most challenging interview I've ever done is more like 45 interviews, which is about the number of interviews I've done with Donald Trump. And, um, and including one where I was spent two days straight with him and over 30 hours. And the reason it's challenging is because, and you, you know this as well, in so many interviews, he throws up these clouds of words, which are very, you know, which especially if you're up against the clock, he filibusters and you can't get through. I stopped doing live interviews with him. I would only do on tape because of that tendency. Um, and it's hard to pierce through the fog and actually hone back in on an important subject. And then you find that when you do, he uh, he gets quite angry. He'll often cause trouble for himself as as he's as he's doing it but you have to listen so closely because he'll go in five or six different directions in an answer to a single question and you always have to bring it back to the to the the question uh you're asking and then uh, beyond that i guess i mean this is this is is kind of an obscure one but um it goes back to uh, 2003 at the last minute, I got an ear. Uh, no, two separate ones. 2003, I got a, a request to fly to France and interview the foreign minister. And I knew he wanted to do an interview about the Iraq war, but I didn't know that he was going to completely blast uh, the American plans and, and, and make massive news talking about how we're going to be bringing our young men and women back in body bags. And then the second one was... Um, when I actually got to interview Muammar Gaddafi in a tent he had set up in a parking lot of his military base. So he liked to pretend he was in the desert even when he wasn't. And it was an interview that surprised me because over the course of the interview, he decided to announce that he was giving up or wanted to give up his chemical weapons. And that was that was pretty big news. Uh, well, that's well. a big one. So I don't know if you have 30 seconds, but I really love this question from Dr. Tracy Pearson. She's a lawyer and uh, she writes, but she just can't imagine where you, with all of your duties, have time to write. Um, can you, can, I mean, I don't know how you do either, because in live television, you know, you're up against a grinder every single day. Where do you find time to, first of all, think, because that's important as a process of writing, and then actually do the writing? Um, Book writing, I mean. Well, I have a big team working with me on my book, so that helps. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I've gotten relatively efficient at my job. I mean, I, I, and I've learned like, and this was a thing, a harder, a hard thing for me to learn. Growing up, I was always going to be the person who worked harder than anybody else. And I still work really, really hard, but I probably uh, over-prepared for things. And I've now learned to give each task only as much time as it needs and tried not to give it any more than it needs just for the sake of saying that and you know that's that's always a balancing act but i guess that's that's the answer 
I love it because I think that's huge. In live news, that's what a lot of us do. We over-prepare and the time management, uh, no, no viewer gets to see. Like you said at the beginning of this, nobody remembers the question you didn't ask, you know? Yeah, so that's fantastic news. I wish I had longer with you. I could spend hours with you, George. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck, everyone. Don't forget, you can watch me every night on News Nation at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 Central, and 7 p.m. on the West Coast. Don't know where to watch us? Just go to www.joinnn.com. Enter your zip code, and the channel finder will show you where you can find us on your broadcast dial. But don't forget, we're also on all the streamers, Hulu, Roku, YouTube TV. This is Ashley Banfield, and thanks so much for joining me for this edition of Rising Tide. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.